Amen. All right, Chris, let's see if we can get this mic to work. There we go. Well, it is good to be with you again. I know some of you trickled in a little bit after I got to say hello the first time. Uh, but I felt like it was fitting to, once again, because I don't want to miss this opportunity to be a stereotypical dad and show my family off to you. But this morning, I got to snap this photo. So if you haven't gotten to see our new little one, that's Everett in my hands right there. And uh, he and Theodore are adjusting very well. I was telling Leonard this morning that Theodore has taken good ownership over his big brother. And, uh, you know, we have a little swing at home, and typically it goes in this kind of nice and slow motion, but Theodore finds it in himself to remind Everett that the, the speed of it should be faster, and he just kind of goes like this while Everett's in it, and you see little Everett's eyes kind of open up like that, and it's pretty funny. Um, he came two weeks early, but as we like to believe here, right in God's timing, so we're thankful for that, and I'm thankful again for all of your prayers over my wife, who is getting better but is still uh, dealing with some complications. So again, thank you for her, the prayers that you've been sending our way. Well, as you know, last week uh, we had Chuck Hess fill in for us, and uh, I got a good report both from him and from you. So uh, thank you so much for just uh, receiving him well. That meant a lot to him, and it's, it's been a blessing for him to come to the church. And as I understand it, Barb even went and invited him to retreat with us, so we're hoping to see him and his family again. Uh, but last week, he continued in our series of this misquoting God. And for any of you that may not know exactly what this series is about, the heart of this series is really around the fact that sometimes we end up misquoting or misrepresenting or misunderstanding God in his scripture. I mean, it's probably happened to all of us at one point or another, right? Where someone has given us a passage of Scripture or has passed along a certain message that instead of encouraging us, does what? It hurts us, maybe even wounds us, and, and, and causes us to feel a sense of, of anger or resentment as we know that maybe that might not be exactly what the Lord said. So we're taking time in this series to look at popular Bible verses that oftentimes we quote and taking the time to draw out the proper context of those scriptures so that we can understand them well and speak these words of life into other people. Amen? So this week, we're going to be looking at Romans 8.28. So before we actually jump in, uh, would you join me for another time of prayer? Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would illuminate it to us. We pray that during this series, you would use this as an opportunity for us to fall more in love, if you will, with the word that you have spoken into our lives. Father, I pray that as we look at this important passage of Romans 8.28, that you would use this passage to be something that encourages us, that gives us life, and as we try to apply these scriptures in our own life and speak these words of truth in the life of others, Father, I pray that you teach us how to do that effectively and in your love. Father, I pray, as I have prayed so often here in the church, that you would give us eyes to see what you are doing and ears to hear what you are speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a fellow who was stuck on a roof because there was a flood that was coming in. And as the waters continued to rise, he went up onto the roof and was praying and hoping that the Lord would rescue him. And in faith, he kept on praying and hoping that the Lord would rescue him when all of a sudden a rowboat came by and said, hey, come on in. So the gentleman, he replied, no, it's okay, I'm praying to God and he is going to save me. So the rowboat just went on by. 
So the man continues to pray fervently for the Lord to come and rescue him. So eventually a motorboat comes on its way. The motorboat tries to get the man to come on in. And he again replies, no thanks, I'm praying to God and he is going to save me. I have the faith. So the motorboat goes on by and he continues to pray till eventually a helicopter comes up to the roof and says, come on, get on in. And the man finally, once again, still tells the person, no, it's okay. I'm praying that God is going to save me and I have the faith. So the helicopter reluctantly flies away and soon the waters rise above the rooftop and unfortunately the man passes away and he goes to heaven and finally when he gets there, he talks to God and he said, I had the faith in you, but you didn't save me. You let me drown. I don't understand why. God looks at the man and replies, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? I say this cheesy joke because one, I'm, I'm, you know, now I'm double dad, right? So now I got the, the dad jokes are just flowing. But to make a point, though, that so often we want to interpret the way that we think God moves and acts in our lives, right? We, want, we put an expectation on how we want to interpret our faith and how we want to interpret the way that God is going to respond to our faith or respond to our prayers or the way that we look at Scripture that in some ways it can sometimes be uh, different from what God is actually doing. So I think this, this little joke kind of illustrates that, right? And the truth is, is that hopefully we never find ourselves in a situation like that, but hopefully the point isn't lost, that we can do this in our lives sometimes. You know, one of the, the sayings that I've been going back to comes from this old preacher from Jay Klingensmith who said, people are starving for the word of God and they don't even know it, but when they hear it, believe it, and get a taste of it, it feeds their soul like nothing else can. For today, while we're in Romans 8.28, I want to take some time to develop a little bit more context and, and why this verse is so important. But something that I need to be able to point out that I think could be interesting if you didn't know this is that when we read Scripture, we see these little chapter numbers, right, and verse numbers. Well, if you didn't know, that never existed in the Bible when it was originally written. It was added later on to be able to help people navigate text. So in particular, there was this French printer named Robert Stephanus who in the 16th century started to add the verses to scriptures. So when I say turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, it was Robert Stephanus who added that number of 28. And it's a very good thing and a helpful, helpful thing, if you ask me, that this was done because it allows us to quickly go to where we need to go to in order for us to discuss Scripture well. But on the flip side, one of the problems that I think it created and unintended consequences is that sometimes when we approach Scripture we do what? We, we limit our reading to one particular verse. I believe Chuck talked about this a little bit last week, right? How sometimes our scripture studies or our Bible time of reading can just be limited to one verse. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd rather everybody in this church read one verse versus no verse. But what can happen from that is, is sometimes we can lose its context, Right? How do we famously see this as a problem in our culture today? Well, oftentimes we could see it maybe in, in a news segment, right, where someone maybe took a certain sentence, but it wasn't the full entire speech of something, and someone misrepresents something. Maybe it's even happened in our workplace where we've said something, but it hasn't had the whole context around it, and because of that, something ends up getting misinterpreted and misrepresented. 
I think the same thing can happen in Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. Scripture is God's Word. It's what breathes life into us. It's what we can rely on and go back to. But if we fail to receive its context, then in some ways it can be damaging to us. There's this other famous uh, cheesy story of a gentleman who was struggling and struggling in life, and he was just feeling the weight of life on his shoulders, so he took his Bible up, and I'm sure none of you have ever done this before, and he just opened it up randomly, pointed it down, and then read the first thing that he saw. None of you have ever done this, right? And it, what does it go to? Matthew 27, 5. Judas hanged himself. Okay, let me try this again. Opens up his Bible, points his finger down, opens his eyes. Luke 10, 37, go and do likewise. <laughs> it's still God's word, right? It's still Luke 37 or Matthew 27, 5. But what's the problem? It's out of context. And sometimes if we apply this, this, these verses out of context, what ends up happening? We misrepresent what God is trying to say to us. So let's take some time now and talk about Romans 8.28, and I'm going to read it for you right now. And if you have your Bibles with you, we're mainly going to be in the book of Romans, so I encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 8. Uh, just so you know, we do put the verses on the screen, but it's good to be able to familiarize yourself with your own Bible, and I have a reason for that next week, but I won't say more than that today. So Romans 8.28 says this. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to whose purpose? His purpose. Just by a show of hands, who has read or heard this verse before? Just by a show of hands. So pretty much every single one of you has heard this verse before. And if I were to venture to guess the context that you've probably heard this verse under, it's probably to encourage you to understand what? That your situation of pain that you're going through, maybe the struggles that you're going through, that it's going to be okay, right? Because God works all of these things for the good of those who love him. Now, don't get me wrong, this can be a source of encouragement to think under those terms. But let me be honest with you, in the midst of struggle and in pain, when you hear this verse, it doesn't always encourage us, especially if that pain and that struggle is associated with a moment of just complete and utter turmoil, right? You know, many of us can go through life-changing experiences, right, where something happens to us that changes and forever alters the way that we think, the way that we feel, our perception of life. And sometimes these life-changing moments can be very positive, right? What's one that's natural for me right now? It's thinking of a newborn son that has radically changed my life. And it's changed it for the positive. But there are also moments that exist where something of tragedy can happen in our lives and it changes us potentially in a negative way. Maybe it's the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one or, God forbid, being able to outlive your own children. These things have happened before, right? Right? And in those times, it could be difficult to hear a verse like this. Not because this verse isn't trying to speak good truth into our lives, but in some ways it can kind of diminish, if you will, the struggle that we're going through. Now, I need to be careful here, because what I don't want to do, or I, what I don't want to come across as saying, is that God's Word doesn't have an effect on us in a positive way. 
It absolutely does. But we need to also understand how to appropriately apply his word. So what is Romans 8 about? What is Romans 8.28? What's the context that surrounds it? Well, if you didn't know, Paul wrote this letter while he was on his third missionary journey, specifically while he was on, his, uh, while he was on mission in the town of Corinth this Greek town, so he probably wrote it sometime in the winter of 56 to 57 AD. And he writes it to the the church all the way in Romans as a letter to them. And his goal for almost the whole entire book of Romans is to be able to teach them good theology. And if you didn't know, Romans 8 kind of stands apart from a lot of different chapters in the Bible, specifically because he's hitting on such important themes of what the theological underpinnings of our faith look like. So if you've never read the book of Romans or if you've never read chapter 8, I encourage you to do so because it's a very powerful chapter where Paul goes to great length to highlight the differences between us as people who live as people of the flesh or people of the spirit. Now, some of you already know what I mean by that, but to explain it for anybody that doesn't, what, I'm trying, what, what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to show the difference between people who are still living for, quote-unquote, themselves or the world or whatever natural sinful desires comes up in their hearts And then on the other side, people who are living for God, who are surrendering their will to Him, and allowing the Lord to lead their lives. Because that's typically the two different ways we live, right? We either live for ourselves, and whatever desires that we want and have that are oftentimes influenced by selfish reasons, or we live for God. And we allow ourselves and our wills to be submitted to him in leading our lives. So this is, this is what Paul is trying to get at in all of these verses in the book of Romans chapter 8. And he starts talking about this importance of understanding ourselves in context of how God is trying to call us as sons and daughters. Romans 8 heavily deals with this idea of being adopted sons and daughters. And Paul goes as far as saying that not slaves, that, God, that we are not God's slaves, but that we have been called into sonship as children of God. Now this is important, because what does this mean? And this is so different than so many other faiths out here. Is that God sees us as his children. You might think that other faiths out there believe the same thing. But in fact, you'd be mistaken. Christianity stands apart in this. That God sees us as his children. In fact, one of the terms that sometimes is used specifically by Jesus in the New Testament is this word and this phrase of Abba. Does anybody know what that means? It means father, but it's so different because here's the thing. My, my son, Theo, he's already able to call me by, by my name and, and he doesn't call me father. He calls me daddy or dada. And the same thing, he doesn't call mother, mother, he calls mother, mommy. In fact, my wife doesn't like it if he ever says mom, because she's like, when did I become mom? (laughs) I'm mommy. (laughs) Well, this word of Abba means the same thing. It's an affectionate word of endearment. And this is the word, this is one of the words that Jesus uses to talk about God the Father. More like God the Daddy. And this is so different and beautiful because what does that mean for you and your faith? It means that when you look at God, you don't just look at Him as a father in a formal sense. 
that you look at him as your father, as your daddy, as your dada. I'm not trying to trivialize this by sounding like a child, but in this way, a child is so right in the way that he looks at God or the way that she looks at God because they see God the Father for who he is. Daddy. And this is one of the points that Paul is trying to drive at in Romans chapter 8, is he's trying to help us see God as this daddy, as this heavenly father, that we are his children and that we are not slaves, but that we can look at this relationship with him as a true, beautiful relationship. So, and then where does Paul go from here? He goes to verse 18 where he starts to speak specifically on suffering. Now, why is that unique, I think? Well, because I think it's important for us to understand that suffering comes in our life. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this time because I already know the answer. But if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you've experienced pain and suffering, every hand would shoot up in this room. Some of you might be in the midst of deep pain and suffering right now. And you might be dealing with something right now that weighs upon you in such a way that you feel crippled by that pain and suffering that you're going through. Whether it's in a past offense that you've done or a past offense that someone has directed towards you. And because of that, you struggle with pain and you struggle with the sufferings of life. One of the fatal flaws in our church life of today, and look, you already know that I'm very careful with criticizing the church because here's the thing. I think us as Westerners, it's so quick for us to open up our phones if we get a bad experience at a restaurant and then write a quick review on why we thought that restaurant failed us, right? Or, or that business, right? We're so quick to criticize, especially because of online media, right? We're so quick to just let people know what we think of them. So I want to be careful when I criticize the church because my heart isn't to condemn the church. And what, what do I mean by church? I mean, I mean the church universal. I don't just mean peace Mennonite. I, I mean the big C church. But one of the difficulties that the Western church is facing is oftentimes because we live in a, a culture that for the most part has been blessed prosperity-wise where many of us live so much better than the rest of the world, that we associate blessings specifically with health and wealth, right? And we think that when God says something like, you will be blessed, we immediately go to those two things, health and wealth. So what I like here in Romans chapter 8 is that Paul specifically talks about suffering. Because here's one of the givens in life. There will be times where you experience pain, and there will be times where you experience suffering. How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to allow that to change us and influence us? You see, earlier I had mentioned that we have these moments in life that, that in some ways change us. And sometimes these moments are, are brought about by negative experiences, and sometimes they're brought about by positive experiences. But one thing I did not say is, is that regardless of whether this experience was positive or negative, we hold a responsibility to allow ourselves to use that as an opportunity to grow or an opportunity to become bitter. Now, this is a personal observation. It's not scientific in any way. But have you noticed that sometimes when you meet 
an elderly person, they're either super bitter <laughs> or they just have this grandma-grandpa joy. And look, just an observation here that maybe that is an outworking of perspective on how we handle things. That we see kind of being lived out in the later years of our lives. Again, not scientific, just an observation. You know, a life-changing experience for me, obviously I mentioned one that happened to me recently, but I want to share another one with you. It was in the early 2000s, I think it might have been around 1999 or 2000 itself, and um, typically at that season of my life, I would, I would spend, are you laughing because that's not that long ago, or are you laughing for something else? <laughs> for me, I was like 10 or 11, okay? <laughs> so it feels like a long time ago. So I was around 10 or 11, it was 1999 or 2000, I can't remember, and um, I was, at that time in my life, I would spend usually a couple of weeks in Puerto Rico, and that was a normal routine where my, my parents would ship me off to Puerto Rico for a few weeks, and in this particular stint that I was in Puerto Rico, I was spending about uh, a month there, and it was really good for me for other reasons, but there was something in particular that happened on this particular trip, and that is... I'm awoken suddenly in the middle of the night to screams, yelling, shouts, and I have no idea what's going on. You see, my grandparents had a home in Puerto Rico, and they had a mother-in-law suite that was detached from the house, and I was living there in that room. And I'm hearing all these screams, and I'm hearing all this yelling going on. So I immediately open up my door, and I start to walk out with hesitation. And I go into the kitchen, which is the first door that kind of connects in this breezeway between this mother-in-law suite. And I, I say suite. I didn't have air conditioning or, or very many, many other amenities. And I go into the kitchen, and... I see my grandfather and he's holding his head like this and there's blood gushing down his face. I see my, my other cousin who's spending the time there and he's holding up a bat and I see my other cousin and she's just crying and my grandma is hysterical and I'm saying, what is going on? Well, in this life-changing experience, Somebody had busted down the front door of the house and a group of robbers came in and they went to the first room where my 15, 16 year old cousin was and they tied her up and they started demanding by gunpoint, where is the money? Where is the money? Who are in the other room? Now, she told a half lie and said, don't go into the room outside or the next room over because those that's my little brother and my little cousin. They're very little. She was lying because in reality, I was around 11 and he was uh, just a couple years older than me. So they go and they bypass those rooms and they go into my grandparents' room and they wake up my grandparents by taking the butt of a gun and smashing his head. And then they punch my grandmother while she's in her bed and they start demanding for money. My grandfather gives him what they had and my grandparents were very frugal people. If you didn't know, my grandpa was a minister and after that he was a school teacher so it wasn't like he was this high-rolling guy gives him around $20, which was all that he had on him, and they leave. I remember rushing to the hospital after that, but before that moment, I remember my grandpa, who has this hematoma on his head and just swelling up and bleeding everywhere, he's going up to each one of us and he's saying, are you okay? Are you okay? And then days after that, he starts praying for these people. And you see, my grandpa, who I know many of you know, we, we buried him this year. He was the kind of guy to just, if they asked for that $20, he would have given those $20. And he prayed for them in love and never showed an ounce of bitterness. In fact, he never even talked about this afterwards. When I brought, him up, when I brought it up again, I mean, it was never out of anger. 
And while this was a negative experience in my life, I just remember thinking to myself, my goodness, what character out of a person to be able to just focus on, on, on instead of the individual as an evil person, focus on the individual as a person that just needs Jesus, that person that is lost. That influenced me, that changed my perspective, even though it was a negative situation for the better. So what am I trying to get at here? What am I trying to say? Well, I want to read a few verses to you from the book of Romans. So I'm going to read from 8.22 to down to 30, and we're going to put that on the screen for you. It says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. So what is creation groaning over? Well, the fact that the world is broken. So Paul is trying to communicate here that creation itself is in some ways groaning over its own brokenness. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So the earth groans and we groan because we recognize the fallen nature of this world, but we wait eagerly for what? For Christ's second coming. Realizing that there will be a day where what happens this pain that we suffer with will be put to an end. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And what is it that we're waiting for? We're waiting for the very thing that we don't have, and that is the, the completion of God coming to us and ending the pain and suffering. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know we, what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. How should this encourage you, church? Well, it should remind you in saying that whatever pain that you're going through, whatever suffering that you're uh, experiencing, that if you are a Christian and you have claimed to Christ and the Lord has given you His Spirit, which He has for anybody that claims the name of Christ, then that means that the Spirit literally prays on your behalf. That's what it means to intercede. It is standing in the gaps for you. The Holy Spirit, He is standing in the gaps for you. And that should encourage you because that means that whatever situation you're in, the Lord is aware of it. And He is praying on your behalf. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So what does this verse say in 27 leading up to 28? That the Spirit is searching our hearts and that the Lord is using this Spirit to stand in the gaps for us for God's people, according to His will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. So what is my first point for today? And I know I took a while to get here. God works for the good. God works for the good. Pastor Kevin, we know that. You've read Romans 8.28 between you and Preston like four times already. What do you mean God works for the good? The Greek that's used here for the word good is agathos. And it means specifically for the benefit, for good, for, or, or maybe even for well-being. 
You see, the goodness of God is oftentimes misinterpreted. Just like the person who is, is getting the rowboat brought to him, the motorboat and the helicopter is misinterpreting God rescuing him and God saving him in that moment. Sometimes we misinterpret the good of God and we focus on the good of God with, again, with this idea of health and wealth, when in reality, when we read the verses in their context, what is the good that is ultimately we're trying to strive towards? Being conformed to the image of Christ and realizing that a day is coming when God is going to come back, when he's going to end this pain, end this sickness, and that we are going to live in glory with him. Amen? That is the goodness of God, that he came into this world, that he took up the cross, that he died a death, not deserving of himself, but deserving of ourselves, and he did that so that we can be reconciled to God, Abba the Father. This is the goodness. So when we read Romans 8.28 and it says, we know all that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, we need to also understand that the situations of life that we go through, whether negative or positive, can be turned into something that glorifies God and helps us along the way. Here's what I mean by this. One of the professors that I got to study under during my time at Denver Seminary is a, a rather well-known, famous, if you will, apologist. And I love what he wrote in a, in, a, in a blog post that he recently did. He said, he said this, and I, please take notice of this because I think it's powerful. Pain, whether physical or, or emotional, offers us a dramatic choice. If God will not take away the pain, we can choose to identify more deeply with the sufferings of Christ and to seek his grace. That grace is sufficient, as the suffering Paul well knew. Or we can alleviate our pain through the pleasures of the sinful flesh. So what is he saying here? He's basically saying that, that each time we suffer, we typically take ourselves down two different paths. One of the paths is either what? Further identifying with Christ and his cross. What do I mean by that? Is every single time you suffer... Listen to this well, because I think this is the heart of, 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 of some of what I want to say today. Every single time you as an individual are going through pain, are going through a moment of suffering, realize that that is an opportunity for you to reflect back on Christ and identify with the same exact pain that he experienced. Not just on the cross, but while he was living his life on this earth. So when you go through those feelings of rejection, of loneliness, of anger, of seeing justice not happening and not actually, or seeing injustice better said, right? When you experience in these moments, that is an opportunity for you to further identify with Christ and his own suffering. What does that do that ties you to Jesus even more? Or you can do something else. And the truth is, church, is I know I've gone down both path, paths in certain times in my life. And I, I, I know that everybody else in this room has also. And this isn't me trying to point the finger, but it's the reality. That we either further identify with Christ, and Chris is going to put it on the screen for us today, or we seek what? Vice. So each time we suffer, we typically go down two paths. One path is vice, and then the other one is further identifying with Christ and the cross. You know this is true. You know that there are moments where you are dealing with pain, and what do you go to? You go to a vice. 
You know, for some people it might be alcohol. For other people it might just be anger and displacing that anger towards someone, whether it's God or somebody else. You can fill in the blanks, but you know that there has been a moment in your life where you've experienced pain and then you go to something that is just a vice, a sin in your, in your own life. Church, I want us so desperately to be able to grow into the truth. And this is my second and final point, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? All things here is not a new house, a new car. That can happen. But what the all things is really trying to point to is the closeness that we can have with God, the forgiveness that we can have with God, the peace, the comfort, the things that ultimately our heart needs and is crying out for. You see, God did not even spare his own son, but he gave his son to us. What generosity. There isn't anything the Lord would not spare to give you during your time here on earth. God is a good Father, and He is a generous Father. So how can our perspectives change with Romans 8.28? Well, one of the ways that I think they can change is, is while we are in the midst of suffering, while we are going through turmoil, or, or, or maybe just while we are going through moments and seasons of life that we might not fully understand, to remember that our Abba Father loves us, that He calls us more than conquerors, meaning that we can get through this situation through God's grace, and that ultimately He will use these situations in life to be able to bring about his good, the transforming of our lives, the more a close association that we can have with Christ, and really the glorification that we can bring through suffering well through these times. Can you do that, church? Can you be that kind of person? And when you read this verse, can you instead associate with those things versus using this as a magic sprinkling over, well, that means that I should have a bigger house or a larger 401k. <laughs> but instead, realize that God is working out for the good of those who love him. Amen? Do you feel like more than conquerors? I hope you do. And if you don't, I encourage you to read Romans 8 again and again until you allow these truths to wash over you so that you can come to realize that God has given us victory over sin and death and over Satan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for just your goodness, for what you offer to us that you continue to bless us with so many different things, most of which is your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every single one of us in this church today come to a place where we recognize that when we are going through pain and suffering, that it is an opportunity to further identify with you, in the suffering that you went through. I pray, Lord, that you help that be something that we can look to and strive for when we are in the midst of suffering versus going to our vices. Father, I pray that over our people. I pray that you help us be those kinds of people. 
that in the midst of pain and in the midst of struggle, we can realize, Lord, that you're still working these situations out for our good. So may we turn our gaze to you in our moments of suffering and look to the one that we can cry out and say, Abba, too. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we end in our last song, I'm going to invite the ushers up to be able to serve us communion. I want to let everybody know in the church that here we practice open communion. What does that mean? That means that all are welcomed to take communion. But Scripture does remind us, and it says that we shouldn't be taking communion unjustly, meaning that if we don't hold to Christ, if you don't consider Christ your personal Savior, I ask that you refrain from taking it because this moment is sacred and these elements are sacred because these elements represent the blood and the body of Christ that was broken to us. So again, if you are not a believer, I just ask that you refrain from it. But if you want to make a declaration of faith, then I invite you to take communion as a way of declaring whose you are, that you are a child of God. So at this time, ushers, will you please make the communion elements available uh, to those in the congregation? We hope to, by the way, go back to the traditional way of doing communion here very soon. So hopefully by next, next month we can go back to that older style of doing it that, that we love. I know some of you struggle to open these uh, little plastic self-enclosed communions, and so do I. But what a blessing it was to be able to do this during COVID and still kind of feel able to enjoy this together as a body. <clears throat> in the book of Luke, chapter 22, specifically in verse 19, Jesus is meeting with his disciples for what is known as the Passover meal. And Jesus, in some ways breaking from tradition, he took the bread, it says. It says that he gave thanks and he broke it. Why did he break it? Because in the breaking of the bread, it symbolized his brokenness that he was going to go through. And he specifically said these words. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. May we take of the bread together. And it says that in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant. What is the new covenant? That we can have the forgiveness of sins through the bloodshed of Jesus. In my blood, which is poured out for you, may we take the cup together. Lord, we thank you for your broken body and your spilled blood, for your sacrifice that you gave. We do not take this moment lightly, and we recognize the cost. So we thank you, Lord, for the faith that we can have for you, the deliverance that we can have for you, that we can live now as more than conquerors, as children of God that have been adopted into sonship. In Jesus' name, amen. in the hymnal. Let's all stand up.
What I'd like for you to do this week as a way of application is to work on your perspective, to take time to think about your problems. It could be the things that you feel pain about, the things that you feel like you're still suffering through, and to use that as an opportunity to look to the cross and to further your association with Christ and his suffering, to realize that there is no pain or no struggle that you have gone through that is foreign to Jesus and what he's gone through. Use that as a way to strengthen your relationship and your closeness to him. And I believe that as you do that, the peace of the Lord will come over you. As a reminder to all of you, I'm always up here in the front for a time of, if you want to have a time of prayer, if you just want to chat, whatever you need, I'm here for you along with the elders and so many.